Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hi everyone, hello and welcome to the gallery. Thank you so much for coming to this lunchtime talk today. My name's Lee Robb, I'm the Curator of Contemporary Art and I'd also like to acknowledge that this talk is taking place on Ghana country and that we always pay our respects to Elders past and present. So, okay. Um, I, I was alerted to the fact that this talk was uh, were, um, featured in the Australian on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming that's why you're all here <laughs> as a pick of the week. So, uh, so no pressure. But I guess it's a it's a fitting a fitting talk, a fitting place to start, looking at the nature of controversy and I guess in some ways the the role of the the media in that. And um, and I'm going to touch upon that in 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 a way and so I thought we would uh, discuss a work that is extremely um, well known in the collection but is also one that uh, divides opinion and we're talking about the nature of controversy um, the shifting of public opinions and also the nature of interpretation and ultimately of taste so I thought before we go into depth talking about Belinda de Brucchio's We're All Flesh, and I'm also going to do a bit of a comparative analysis looking at Rodin's Inner Voice, I wanted to take us back to a work that is, was once part of the gallery's collection, but um, no longer is. And in a way, I guess it's a story of um, changing times, but also a story of censorship in a way. So. Um, uh, in, in looking through some of you know, the most controversial works in the collection here at the Art Gallery, I was taken back to uh, about a century ago, a century from when this work went on display, which was in 2013, to back to 1913, and to um, a, a work, now infamous, by a British painter, Irish-born, but um, British painter William Orpen, and a work which was called Sowing New Seed. Um, I've, my wonderful colleague Georgia has, uh, will hold up one copy, but there's a few um, copies that we, if we could just circulate um, as, as we go. I might split um, some of those to the other side of the, the room. I'll just take those. So the painting that I wanted to look back on uh, was also discussed and unpacked at length by Angus Trumbull, who was the uh, much-loved curator of European art. And uh, he wrote, uh, sort of unpacked uh, an article called Adelaide, a school for scandal, looking at, um, you know, he, um, uh, he wrote an article in 2000 for Art in Australia. Um, and in this article, he considered the question particularly looking at 19th century Adelaide society and whether it was more or less conscious of scandal or rather he asked, was it more easily scandalised than other cities in Australia um, at the time? And Trumbull wrote, the answer to that question is both yes and no. And one of the three case studies that he looked at in this article um, was to the case of this painting, as I've mentioned, by uh, British artist William Orpen. Um, at the time, uh, 
Adelaide artists Margaret Preston and Will Ashton, they were acting as spotters uh, for the art gallery and for the board and its trustees. So that meant that when they were travelling overseas, they would they would consult with uh, with other curators, directors, and um, and other societies, the, um, and in including the um, the New English Art Club, which was which was uh, which was an important touchstone for what was some of the most interesting art of of the time. So when uh, Margaret Preston and Will Ashton were, were overseas in uh, 1913 in London, they came across this work by William, William Orpen. You can see it's circulating. It's actually quite a modest work for the amount of controversy it would later um, uh, create, 137 by 137 centimetres, so um, quite a modest-sized square, square painting, probably about this size, roughly, width and height. And... Um, if you if you have a look at the image as it's as it's passing by, it's uh, an image of a sort of tableau of characters, and it's set against a barren landscape of rubble and ruins, and it overlooks the Dublin Bay. And Orpen, when he created the painting, and this is an interesting conversation around the intent of the artist in the making of the work, uh, he considered the painting to be an allegory of the depressing state of the arts in Ireland at the time. Because what was quite interesting and unusual was that the Department for Agriculture was in charge of uh, the subsidies for arts and arts education. Um, <laughs> So, so this painting was very much a, yeah, a, a provocation. It was a critique of the system at the time and also to the funding, um, the, the, the state of funding to the arts in Ireland in 1913 um, because all of this was being managed by the bureaucrats for the, the Department of Agriculture. Um, so you can see in the, in the image, there's a partly clothed nude, nude woman who sprinkles seeds onto the ground. She's sort of wearing a sort of partly nude, flamboyantly open um, coat and, uh, or gown, dressing gown rather. Um, and she sprinkles seeds onto a very dry ground um, and it's quite, it's quite sort of barren. Um, and it was intended by the artist this, this figure, the sower of the new seed, as a symbol of new ideas, of boldness, of freedom of expression. And he really saw her as representing progress in art and representing a sort of figure of modernity. And in the, in the, in the painting, in the centre, uh, are her offsprings, uh, are, you know, two sort of cherub-like figures playing that are partly reflected but are also sort of truncated in the reflection. So sort of um, cut back, I guess, their, their, um, uh, you know, their representation. And to the right, by a withering tree, underneath it is a couple. Um, uh, the woman has bare feet and uh, the man is dressed in black. The woman sort of turns away from the sower of the seeds and, the, and, her, and her offspring. And the man sort of looks quite sort of stricken as he looks out at the, um, from, from, the, from the work. Their clothes are threadbare and um, he described them, the artist described them as peasants. And um, Orpen used them to describe, um, you know, what he saw as the departments of agriculture's poverty of ideas um, and uh, the artist's low opinion of the policies of the agriculture department in relation to art and their, indeed their expertise in, in deciding what the fate of the arts was. Um, and at the time when it was presented, um, the work had been favourably reviewed by, you know, 
looking back, like quite a huge number of, uh, of newspapers. I wish we could get this amount of uh, response to, to art, but at the time, the work was reviewed and, and really um, positively reviewed by the, um, the Observer, the Globe, the Birmingham Post, the Liverpool Daily Post, and even the Ladies' Pictorial Art Magazine. They loved it. Um, and the Mercury paper, one of the other newspapers, had described the piece as an outstanding masterpiece. So taking into account these reviews, and of course Margaret Preston and Will Ashton looking at the work together, they, um, they also considered it a masterpiece that should really come to Adelaide, should be in the gallery's collection, suggested it as such to the board and the trustees, and um, for what was an extraordinary price at the time, 700 sterling pounds was acquired for the collection. It, um, you know, for and, and quite a quite a major acquisition of contemporary art at the time. Uh, but they considered that it was a really, you know, it was a stunning example of developments in new British art and would also complement the existing and very strong holdings of British art in the art gallery of South Australia's collection. You know, even at the time it was considered, you know, quite radical in terms of its inventive use of colour and also its eccentricity around the tableau and the composition of the figures. Um, the painting was uh, acquired, it was shipped to Adelaide and it arrived in June 1914. And the honorary curator at the time, a man called Edward Davis, insisted that the painting be hung immediately, which is, you know, when, when um, a work of art is acquired into the collection, we, you know, we're usually very excited to get it on the wall as soon as possible and, um, and, to, and to, to make it public, to put it on public display. Um, although at the time, behind the scenes, there'd been quite a lot of, um, you know, opinion from the board was divided um, around its suitability for public display as it was considered a most unconventional work. So what happened next made history. At first, the new seed was received with caution by the press. It was uh, my, my favourite quote from the register, but, um, but not, not, not a terrible response. Um, my favourite response was, uh, the right mental atmosphere in which to view the picture is that of a poem in colour, which I think is quite a lyrical take um, in terms of how to interpret that work. However, everything sort of unravelled, and as Angus Trumbull writes in his um, you know, wonderful article, when the figure in black was mistaken, um, everything unraveled when the, mis the figure in black was mistaken for a cleric. And the painting was very quickly considered a harsh religious critique um, and read through a veil of religious symbolism. It caused absolute outrage amongst the clergy and Reverend Herbert Edwards described his disgust at the gallery showing such a work, considering that it constituted libel against the ministry. Divided the opinions were, and as New Seed attracted its supporters and advocates, um, it, it, um, the, the opinions were divided. It also had its attractors and um, advocates, and those included Hans Heysen. He raved about the work, raved about the use of colour, um, and defended the work, uh, as did many artists in the Adelaide art scene at the time, in that it also demonstrated uh, the awareness and the championing of new developments in European modernism, and also reflected an avant-garde position to acquire such a work in such a timely manner. However, momentum picked up and soon the protests mounted um, and newspaper articles described it as a freak purchase and an atrocious daub. 
As a result, however, over the month of June, it was still on display, attendances soared and people flocked to the gallery. It was in the Elder Wing, it wasn't, you know, I don't know exactly which gallery it was first displayed in, but not a mere few footsteps from us right now. And uh, they quickly crept up to about 400 visitors a day, which was unheard of, to within a month, 5,000 people a day were coming <laughs> to see the work. So it was, um, you know, uh, it, it became literally the talk of the town. Um, and even beyond that, what is fascinating is that um, not only did it, you know, uh, receive, you know, a sort of diatribe in the press, there were a number of uh, local theatre groups that developed it into plays and pieces of great local satire, turned into three pieces of um, cinema, um, which are now lost, unfortunately. I would really love to see those. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the work circulated in more, more ways than one. But, um, you know, all of this frenzy sort of culminated in, you know, a disastrous encounter um, in, when, in an attack, an actual attack on the painting by a member of the public in a very small window, apparently, according to the, the, the reports um, when uh, a guard had their back turned, a member of the painting tried to fill in and cover up the figure with a, with a, what is described as a, an indelible pencil. I don't know if that's an oxymoron, but, um, but anyway, a member of the public tried to, tried to um, actually cover up uh, some of the, the, the female figure in, in the work with, um, by, by drawing directly onto the surface of the painting. Um, which is absolutely shocking. And so it was vandalized. Um, the painting was immediately taken down. It was repaired, it was possible to repair it and to um, the conservators fixed it, they were able to, to glaze it and, um, and it was ready to be put back on public display. Um, however, mounting pressure behind the scenes, what seems to have happened is that rather than putting it black, back on display, even with that amazing attendance, um, uh, they, uh, it was decided um, that they were, not, they were going to actually keep, keep it in the storeroom. Stayed in the storeroom for a while, and then it was decided not only to just keep it off display, it was returned to the artist. So um, it was and in, in exchange for another work, um, uh, which... Um, yeah, which in, in, in return for a portrait of a, um, of a, of a, of a, a British soldier. So, um, yeah, which um, Angus Trumbull describes as a rather dreary portrait. <laughs> um, eventually, and only sadly after William Orpen's death, the scandalous work was eventually purchased by a senator from Victoria, and it was um, eventually gifted to the Mildura Art Centre in 1956, where it remains today. So it actually ended up coming back to Australia after all of that time, but after the artist's death. 
Um, and I thought it was an interest, you know, it was an interesting tale to look at um, a century um, of uh, between, um, you know, bet between uh, controversial works. There's obviously been more than one controversial work um, here in the gallery, but I just wanted to look at those two because they fell um, a century apart, and because of the different approaches to um, negotiating um, public. Uh, uh, I guess I guess to general responses and and uh, the nature of the nature of controversial works of art and the role of art and the value of art in um, in in those discussions um, and uh, you know which I think um, you know it, it really allows us to unpack some of the discussions around the ever shifting mercurial nature of controversy the role and value of art. The, shift, the changes in public opinion, matters of interpretation and taste. Um, bringing us back to Belinda de Brookier and We Are All Flesh, which um, was first exhibited and um, spotted by the uh, director at the time, Nick Mitsevich, in an exhibition at ACCA, at the Australia Centre for Contemporary Art, um, in an exhibition of the same title, We Are All Flesh. Um, it was um, acquired and it was supported through private donations. You can see the incredible list of, um, of supporters on the, on the label there who supported its acquisition. It's a major, major piece which has become a defining piece in the contemporary art, international contemporary art collection here at the gallery. But um, as many, I was not here at the time, I, and I only sort of witnessed this from afar because it was possible to, to read some of the responses to the acquisition and in turn public display. Um, I believe it was one of the works that was also acquired as part of the unveiling of the, the new um, Melrose Wing rehang in uh, mid-January 2013. So the work has now been on display for just over six years and um, it's a work that all of you know very well. Many of you um, spend a lot of time uh, on your tours when you're, when you're giving guided tours discussing the work and in many cases with our education department um, really unpacking it or thinking about how you know, it becomes a, a litmus test for how to negotiate controversial and difficult works of art. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I think it, um, I just wanted to compare some of the sort of re responses that, um, that were gathered at the time um, when it was first, when it first went on, when it first went on display, which were, you know, not dissimilar to the type of responses to, um, to the work by William Orpen uh, 100, 100 years ago. Um, uh, quotes around um, it being an outrageous monstrosity, um, that the director at the time should be sacked on the spot for presenting such a perverse and evil piece of so-called art. And, um, but it was also responded to publicly in an article also by the director at the time um, where um, he, you know, clearly unpacked it in the tradition of art history, going back to Goya's Disasters of War, also which are um, held in the collection, to other works by Patricia Piccinini, Big Mother, a work which was similarly um, controversial when it was first uh, displayed, um, but has also, like the work here, become one of, um, you know, one of the most loved and also, I guess, most... Uh, um, uh, uh, most difficult works in in some cases um, for for you know, um, uh, most loved and most uh, um, 
reviled at the same time. And in some of the writings about that, uh, that uh, you know, that were published at the time, is that uh, Nick wanted it to be, uh, Nick Mitzvich and the director and the, the gallery were, you know, wanted it to be seen really as a symbol of, um, of uh, you know, something that could elicit understanding and openness. And it's quite an interesting thing. One of the, together with my colleague Kylie Neagle in the education department, um, when we're working with students, we often come to this piece and we start sort of unpacking what it means for a work of art, how we can respond or how we can actually sort of reconcile our responses to um, a work of art like this. And, um, and in many cases, we, we, we look at um, you know, how the work was made, how it's interpreted, and um, and what is the information that we have at hand to be able to actually, uh, you know, address what's happening here. And it's interesting when you look through a lot of the, a lot of the, um, the the letters to the editor and 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 other things. In many cases, um, uh, the work wasn't actually. Uh, seen firsthand in, in some cases. The idea of it was as reviled as much as the work itself. And I think, um, you know, when the artist was interviewed about the making of the work, it's, um, it's very interesting in terms of where it sits in art history uh, as well. Belinda de Brucchia, an extraordinary Belgian artist who was also selected to represent um, her country at in Venice, at the um, in the Venice Biennial, she was also invited by the, at the Flanders Fields Museum in 2000 to make a work that responded to the horrors of war, and this was actually the first time that she started looking at horses or, or was interested in in horses. Previously, she'd been looking at bodies and sort of composite human bodies to think about um, our you know the human condition and that the fragmented human form in a way could tell us more about ourselves and more about our commonalities with others than, um, than, than, a, than a full figure, which is something that Rodin did also about 100 years before. Um, and she said that she, in all of her research around the First World War in, in going through uh, imagery and, um, and, and photography, she discovered that the, as, as, as much as the, the sort of fields and streets were strewn with bodies, more than that, they were strewn with the bodies of horses. And so she, you know, she found this to be, you know, quite confronting as well. And having grown up as this, the daughter of a butcher, she had also been exposed to, um, to, to really sort of seeing um, the, the carcasses of animals in, in, her, in her everyday life. And it wasn't till much later when she was invited to do that commission for Flanders Fields that, that she, she was able to, to sort of see that connection to her history and her upbringing. Um, but she started looking at horses, and uh, and as many of you will know, she's worked with the University of Ghent, and um, and she found that after any of their their sort of studies and um, and research on um, on donated um, horse carcasses had had taken place, that then they were um, they were. Um, 
they, they were burned or destroyed. And so she, she wanted to reclaim the, the carcasses of the horses and she would do it through an incredibly meticulous process of um, once, once um, her and, um, and her studio were notified that there was a, a horse that was available, she would go in, she would spend time at the university in their labs and she would make up to you know, 30 different casts, or moulds, sorry, moulds of the, the body of the horse. And then afterwards, they, um, she would work with a taxidermist to, or with the skin of the, of the horse to then reconstruct these composite um, figures. Um, so the, you know, what you're seeing is, is, a, is, a, is a structure, not, not, not the horse itself. It's, it, it has a sort of empty um, armature around which the, the, the skin is, is shaped. And that she's shaped into into a, a completely different sculpture. So I think you know, in thinking about the the way that a work such as this was um, created, the history of it, also the the histories of equestrian sculptures in and representation of horses throughout art art history, it it really is you know it stands as you know an extraordinary equestrian uh, sculpture of sorts that um, that that also is as much a response to the atrocities of war as Goya's. Um, as Goya's uh, etchings were. And um, I thought it would be, uh, you know, just, just as an aside and just to, just to compare because of the, I was very interested in the, in the nature of these, um, these figures, um, particularly the, 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 the horse without the head and then the work of Rodin's inner voice because both of them are about sort of um, reconstruction and these composite fragmented bodies. And um, I wanted to point to another work which at the, at, at the time when it was first displayed was similarly met with a huge amount of controversy and uh, uh, response. Many of you can um, have seen it or you can see it behind, sorry I'm <laughs> pointing at you, but um, the work is called Inner Voice. It's also been known as Meditation Without Arms. Uh, it was a work by Rodin that was um, first cast in 1896 and presented at a Paris salon in 1897. And it's still um, regarded as one of the works that was most challenging and difficult um, for art historians, for other artists, and also for the public to respond to. And it was also rejected and thrown out of the Paris Salon because it was considered, um, because it was this, this partial figure with missing arms and, and sections of, um, of, uh, of its legs missing, that it, uh, you know, that it wasn't considered a, a whole sculpture and it, wasn't, and it certainly uh, challenged the, the sort of classical understandings of, of the body at that time. And so it was, um, so was, uh, um, you know, was sort of vehemently um, attacked at the time, as was, um, as was his monument, his first proposal for his monument to Victor Hugo and also Man with the Broken Nose. And so it's interesting that these sort of broken bodies or these sort of figures that have either been fragmented or changed or, or challenged are also the ones that, um, that, that are um, the most challenging. But it's quite interesting that both Rodin and Belinda de Brucchier say that it's actually because of the way that they've created these sculptures that, they, that we see more of our 
themselves in them, that there's more points of commonality in resemblance in these and more ways into a position of compassion than, um, than if it were a whole um, complete figure or a whole complete, um, or, or, or a, a taxidermy horse um, in, you know, completely preserved. So um, I thought it might be a chance to just sort of um, maybe open up to, to some questions. I will not be able to answer them probably, but, um, but, but, I, uh, but I just thought for most of you who have come to know, know this work and indeed Rodin's work and other works in the collection, um, that uh, you know, it's interesting to come and review this work again six years on um, now that it's been in the collection for this amount of time and I guess where it, where it stands as a, as, a, as a sort of divisive work, but also just to, to value the role of art as, as a provocation and as something that tells us something about ourselves at a particular time. Thanks. Thank you. I was just wondering if some of the response to this, because I, I was a volunteer when it first, um, and there was people who were very upset, um, and they put out a special um, flyer about it and everything, but it's the context of it being in uh, sort of a, uh, the old part of the gallery and you've got this contemporary work and that sort of really uh, contrast is something that had, had, uh, had an impact. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think part, a lot of the, um, a lot of the con Controversy or a lot of the things were also around the conflating of these historic, um, you know, the, the the crucifixion with the uh, with with the horse. So, um, so you, so you're suggesting that that because of that that uh, that that contrast, that it made it even more um, the impact even greater. Yeah. Yeah. No, Adelaide has an incredible history of being super progressive from its festivals and, and everything. So, and from over, over the years, bringing some of the most um, interesting, interesting works and um, programs to town. So I don't, I don't think that it is at all a reflection of, 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 of Adelaide. I think it also taps into a certain moment in time. I think it was described um, as, you know, the, sort of a monstrosity, a Frankensteinian monstrosity, which um, spoke about um, genetic mutation. And so in some cases, the, the sign of the times um, and some of the, the concerns of the times are also registered or sort of um, become, become sort of, uh, the work becomes symbol for some, some of those uh, those positions, I think, yeah. Okay, I think before any more hard questions come, I'll wrap this up. Thank you very much.